0: The well-known great artist Raphael's unfinished last work was entitled The Transfiguration. Uh, He actually had an assistant who finished it for him after his death and it hangs now this massive picture in Vatican City. But He was commissioned to paint it for the Narbonne Cathedral in France. During his final years, that's what he worked up until his death in in 1520. And so, if you were to see that painting, and don't do it now, but you can Google it if you want, if you were to see that painting, it really is a dual scene. And on the top of the painting, the whole upper section are these bright, magnificent colors. And in the middle is Christ Jesus. And on his side is Moses. And on the other side is Elijah and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, lay on the ground, shielding their eyes, and there is a brightness about the top of that picture, sort of uh, emanates from Jesus as he is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's this wonder and beauty about it. As you work your way down the picture though, the bottom is very dark. And on the bottom it is a dark scene and you see the other nine disciples and you see a scene of, of hurt and of chaos and, and there's, there's just kind of a, a real stark contrast to the top of the picture. And indeed Raphael has painted for us that stark contrast of the Mount of Transfiguration and then coming down off the Mount. And the bottom of that picture is the scene that we see today. And as beautiful as it was for a moment to stand on that transfiguration and to view the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, we now leave that mountain and walk back into the chaos, the difficulties, the darkness of the world beneath in the valley. I would just say that's the reality for us, that we need continually to put before us, especially as we gather together, that we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, that that he would shine brightly. And yet we know that that sort of mountaintop experience of just focusing on the beauty of Christ is going to meet with the darkness and the difficulty of this age. And so Raphael sets up very well for us our text today, as we leave the mountain, we come into the valley. As you read the text, it's interesting. We've talked about how Peter, you can tell, has a lot of influence on Mark and his writing. And the text, as you see, it really is, you get this sense of this firsthand account of Peter as he comes down the mountain and what he sees before him. It's not a lot unlike what we looked at last week with Moses in Exodus 24 as he was on Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord descended and he is, is bright and shining in the face and he, he leaves the mountain. You remember he finds all kinds of rebellion and idolatry taking place with the people below. It's not unlike Jesus himself in the early chapters of Mark as he experiences that baptism and God speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and the spirit descends and we have this beautiful picture there in his baptism and immediately straightway John says, or Mark says he heads out into the wilderness where he faces darkness and temptation and now off the Mount of Transfiguration they are getting ready to walk into this setting. So there's a commotion you see as you heard read to you. I, I do hope as the scripture reading takes place, especially in these larger passages, that you're able to listen as the scripture reading takes place to set the context for the preaching and it doesn't just become a, you know, something we do that we sort of all tune out. But as, they, as Jesus and Matthew Mark, not Matthew Mark, Peter, James, and John, as they descend the mountain, they come up on scene, they find the disciples are in an argument, in a dispute with the scribes. And what's taken place is that there is a man who has come looking for Jesus, and Jesus is not there, he finds the disciples, and his son is suffering greatly, as you heard read. And in his suffering, they ask the disciples, can you cast out this demon that's causing these problems? The disciples are unable to do it. And so it seems that the scribes, who undoubtedly were there to trap Jesus in some way, were now taking this advantage, saying, Jesus is not able to do this. See, the disciples cannot do it. And there is this dispute that has arisen, and they're in an argument. And Jesus walks into this scene, and he asks, What's going on? What's all the commotion? What's taking place here? A crowd has gathered around seeing what has taken place and from the crowd answering the question comes the father, comes the father of this son who is struggling, who is possessed by a demon and he comes forward and he speaks and he paints the ugly picture. Verse 17 says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute, And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. It, it, this picture, we, we remember that this demon possession, we see it so often in the Gospels. And it's not that Satan and darkness are not still at work now, but we see sort of this overt possession often in the Gospels. And it, you see it as Jesus Christ comes invading darkness. He's come to destroy the works of darkness, the Gospel tells us. And so there is this amped up warfare Between Christ and and darkness, you see all this demon possession that takes place in the Gospels. We have another illustration of it here. And it really illustrates for us just, again, that contrast of the glory and beauty of Christ and the struggle and the pain of this age as we move from light to darkness, as we move from worship to blasphemy, as we move from beauty to ugliness. And I think as we move into the text, it gives us the reality of the age that is passing away. Overlapping with the age to come. That scripture would tell us, indeed, truly, we are dual citizens. Jesus has come and he is offering the kingdom here. He is establishing it here. He is demonstrating and showing us what that looks like. And, and we enter the kingdom by his grace. And we are told we are citizens of that heavenly kingdom. He is our king, and we see it in all its beauty and all of its glory. That's our truest reality, is citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And yet we all live and experience, and our life takes place in this age that is passing away. As humans, we belong to this age that is passing away. And this contrast, this pull exists in our hearts and in our lives. Of the beauty of Christ and yet just the darkness and the heaviness and the confusion of the age around us. And yes, there is joy and there is blessing here. So I don't want to, to paint it too stark. And yet at the same time you have an age passing away, a heavenly age. You belong to both. How do you function as a citizen of a heavenly kingdom in an age that is passing away? How do you experience life now faithfully? And the answer is you do it by faith. And that's what this text is going to show us. We'll make a few observations. How do we live by faith as citizens of a heavenly kingdom? How do we live by faith right now in an age that is passing away? Jesus' response in verse 19 shows his lament at their lack of faith. He says... Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus levels this complaint about their unbelief. Apparently, everyone's just accepting that because the disciples can't heal this boy, that, that Jesus doesn't have power over the, this darkness. Jesus just can't do anything about this. And he says, oh, faithless generation. When Mark uses the term generation, which he does so a few times, he's not referring to the disciples, or at least not specifically the disciples. He's speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to everyone who is there, the humanity at that time. He's saying, people, how long do I need to be here? How how much do I have to do to demonstrate my glory and my power and my authority and the forgiveness of sins and all that he has done? The glory of God in human form that we just saw in the transfiguration. It's there with them, veiled in humanity. And how long does he have to be here before they take notice, before they see? They do not believe that Jesus is able... But out of that, I wanna make our first observation. There's four observations about faith. And this one is important we get because it'll come up again later. First observation is this, that man's lack of faith does not stop Jesus from accomplishing his purposes. Man's lack of faith does not stop Jesus from accomplishing his purposes. That is that his power is not beholden to our faith. That this unbelieving generation cannot thwart the work and the purpose and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. It's important that we remember this. The, the crowds and their unbelief and their rejection of Christ do not determine Jesus' willingness or his ability to act. And so you see it right after he says, how long am I to bear with you? The end of verse 19, he says, bring him to me. They bring the boy to him. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And everything that the father has described, we now see it playing out here in verse 20. And when the spirit saw him, that is the evil spirit in this boy, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus engages with the father here. And he says, how long has this been happening to him? Drawing the father out. And the father answers, from childhood. And it has cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And as he answers, you see what Jesus catches on. (laughs) If I can do anything, and Jesus r- repeats it there in his response in verse 23, if you can, like, are you serious? If you can, it would be like if you are wanting to get under the skin of like a, I don't know, a 15-year-old boy, and be like, hey, can you help me move this if you're strong enough? Like, if I'm strong enough, what, I mean, it's that sort of, if I can, He's challenging, the issue here is not my ability. The issue here is not my willingness. The issue is your lack of faith. The issue, the problem. And then he says, continues on there, he says, um, Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. All right, now this is a phrase that is lifted out of context and is Spoken by false teachers all over the place, it has caused a huge amount of damage to people. And it's the idea that your faith is what controls Jesus. That if you just believe something enough, you can almost believe it into existence. If you just have enough faith, then this will happen for you. One of the saddest experiences I've had as a pastor was visiting friends of a friend um, who they were in their late 50s a really sweet couple who very gen- had done well in life were successful very faithful in the church that they attended were generous people that way and the lady had been diagnosed with cancer in a fairly late stage and so the couple of the kids grown kids were in and they came asked if I would just come and encourage and, and pray with them and the church that they attended was had this prosperity sense to it that if if they just had enough faith if they just believed enough they were just generous and gave enough to their church and everything would go well with them and for many years it looked like that was the case nice kids grown kids uh, good jobs everything seemed to be happening and all of a sudden she's diagnosed with cancer and it kind of thrown their things into a tailspin And this lady, though, was still laying hold of it while the the husband and and kids seemed to have sort of come to grips with it, where she wouldn't even listen to a diagnosis from the doctors. If it was bad news, she would refuse to hear it because she was speaking truth into existence. She had so much faith that I refused to hear even a bad word because my faith is going to heal me. The fact she wasn't getting better, then it was like, well, there's bad energy around me. My kids, my husband don't have enough faith. And it was devastating to her in her final days. She refused treatment, and it caused real, real heartache in their family. And it seems like this sort of prosperity gospel, this idea that if you just have enough faith, you just believe enough, if you just... You know, if you double what you give in the offering, I bet God will double your income next year. And and this playing on this prosperity idea that somehow God is beholden to the amount of our faith and the amount of our works, and he acts then exactly according to that. And then you walk into trials in life, and it devastates your faith. And what's tricky about it is that, yes, I do think if we're generous, God blesses that. If we are filled with faith, God blesses that and uses that, but I have no right, you have no right, no preacher has a right to stand up and say, well, this equals this. This much faith equals this blessing, or vice versa. This sickness equals your lack of faith here and here. That's not how it works in the providence of God. And so we understand this text isn't saying this. What what Jesus is saying is just the opposite, actually. The issue or the problem is not with the ability of Jesus. It's not if you are able. It's not if you are willing. The issue or the problem is a problem of this man's heart and his lack of faith. Jesus is saying we must have faith that Jesus has the ability and the willingness to accomplish all of his purposes for his glory and our good. That's what our faith is. is nothing is impossible with Jesus Christ. Not that whatever I want, I'm getting it in the way I want, just how I want it, because I'm filled with faith. No, it's that when things are turned upside down, I have faith that Jesus is still for me and not against me. That when everything isn't going just as planned, I have faith that what I think is good, even though it doesn't seem to be happening, I trust that that he knows better than me. That he is willing, that he is able and when the doubts arise, our doubts tend to think, is he willing, is he able? And Jesus is saying, no, all, you need to believe this, everything is possible with me. His faith, his working is not beholden to our faith, but our faith needs to rest in a God who we know is willing and able to do anything to accomplish his, all his purposes for his glory and for our good. And we see that this is true because when Jesus says, you know, if you just believe anything is possible for you, if it really was that sort of like genie in the bottle idea, the man you would think would have been thrilled. But it's not soothing to his soul. Instead, he says in verse 24, immediately the the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He immediately realizes and confesses that faith is not just a decision I can make. It's not that I can just decide or buy a work I can get more faith. Faith is not based on a decision. That's not how it comes. And so it's not a bomb to this man's soul. He's saying, well, I need faith. Give me faith then because I can't just decide to have more of it in this moment. And that's where we see our second observation is that we cannot produce faith by our own effort. It is not simply a decision that is made. The very first thing that this man confesses is his inability to have faith, his inability to produce faith. And so he cries out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We use that phrase often in a song um, that we'll sing, actually, I guess at the end of the service, we'll sing it. Well, I'll use it often in a prayer. And it's because it's a reality and the plea of all of us at some point. In some area of life, there's something that you think is good, and it's just not happening the way you want it or the timing that you want it. And it becomes a challenge to our faith. And it's not if you can't, that the problem is we need to have faith in our own hearts. That we turn to the Lord and ask, help my unbelief. Faith doesn't come by effort. It doesn't come by a, a decision. Life is not some Disney movie where you just sit and you just say, I believe, I believe, I believe. And then you become a princess who can fly or whatever. It's not how it works. We know how it works. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing through the word of God. This is what is given for our faith. That's why on the Mount of Transfiguration, when when God speaks after Jesus is transfigured, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's why through all of the, the parables, it's about having ears to hear. It's listening. We talked about it last week, that the spirit whispers from here. As Amos says, the lion roars from the pages of the text. This is how our faith is built. The Spirit takes this truth and he seals it to our hearts. He illumines our hearts and our minds and our faith grows because of it. He gives us the means of grace to build our faith, to give us assurance of faith. It's not just a decision, it's not effort, but it's through the prescribed means that God has given us. We need to come again and again receive his word third observation comes from the same phrase it is this I'm sure you've heard this from this pulpit at some point before but what matters most is the object of your faith not the quality of your faith it is the object of your faith not the quality of your faith The probably the number one response I get if I get into a discussion about the gospel or religious discussion with somebody is that they're not religious, but they're a person of faith. Faith is really important to them. They're a spiritual person. Faith is helpful. And I try to be kind, so I'm not a jerk to them, but I feel like saying like, unless your faith is in Jesus Christ, your faith is complete waste of time. It's not that you are a person of faith and you have a bunch of faith and that the quality of your faith is somehow redemptive. It is the object and the object alone that is redemptive. I heard this illustration from Kevin DeYoung. And so I'm going to like make it my own, but it didn't like originate with me really. My father-in-law, they live on a farm and they have a, we call it a lake, but it's really just a big pond on their property maybe seven acres or something like that. And um, they've got a bunch of snowmobiles up there and they love taking the snowmobiles out on the pond when it freezes over. Well, the last few years have not been that cold. It was maybe two or three years ago. And we were up there over Christmas time and they want to take the jets or not the jet skis, the snowmobiles out on the frozen pond. And I am a good father, so I was worried about my kids doing it. Um, so I was like, well are you sure the pond is frozen enough? I had some real questions on it. So I go down and I'm walking along the edge of the pond, like close, you know, doing like this little, you know, shuffle here. Like I'm going to make a leap for the bank if something happens. And, you know, every little noise is like bothering me. And so I'm feeling like this is probably a bad idea. Now, my father-in-law, he's lived on that land his entire life. He's a farmer. He has a lot better idea of how the pond is going to freeze than I do. And to be fair, he's not nearly as careful with the small children as I'd like him to be. Um, and so Calvin, who at that time, oh, man, he could have been maybe six or seven. And he had learned to drive the small snowmobile like four minutes ago. And I see him coming down the bank with my father-in-law behind him and he is blazing that snowmobile out onto the pond. So, you know, I start like running for him real carefully. And of course, nothing happens. He's whipping around, having fun. The ice holds him. Now, I didn't have nearly as much faith in that ice. So when I got to the middle, I fell through, right? No, (laughs) that's not the case. The, the case is, is that the ice is holding both of us up. It's not that he really believes it's going to hold him so he doesn't fall through. I don't believe it, so I fall through. No, the ice is the same underneath of us, whether I have a teeny bit of faith or my son and his grandpa have tons of faith in it. <clears throat> All right, there's our illustration. It's not the quantity, it's not the quality of the faith, it's the object of the faith. My teeny, teeny bit of faith and his tons of faith both rested on the same object, the solid ice. Our faith is going to to sometimes be really strong and bold and sometimes be very small. And maybe you come in right now and you are even questioning, do I even believe any of this? Or you come in, your faith is robust. God is not beholden to accomplish his purposes based on your faith. And it's not the quality or the quantity of your faith that is redeeming, but it is the object of who that faith rests. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. And so I'd encourage you, as I have before, you don't come and worship only when you feel full of faith. You don't only come to the scripture when you feel full of faith. You don't only be with the people of God and pray when you feel full of faith. When you have barely any faith and you barely mean it, you keep doing it. Because that is what grows your faith. That is what nourishes you. That is what God will use to convince and assure you that his promises are true. So anyone that would put on you the quality of your faith is what saves you or that you're just a person of great faith or that your worship should you should only kind of do it and pray to the measure of faith that you have. No. Our faith grows and wanes. None of us are going to have the faith that we should but it is the object of our faith that matters and we see that with the Father help my unbelief, but he does say, I believe. We know he has some faith for two reasons. One, he showed up. He came to Jesus. He at least had a kernel of faith. And then he prays for more, so he has a desire for faith. There's two signs that he at least had some measure of faith. So he asks for more, but we are reminded that the object of our faith is what matters. Almost as a side note, not in the text, but I guess for my sermon here, verse 26, and again, after crying out and convulsing terribly, the, the spirit came out, verse 26, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. We have in this healing again, God displaying his powers over darkness. We have again a picture of, from death to life. A picture that the cross comes before glory, that suffering comes before we are lifted up, that called messiahship and discipleship, pictured here. In the broken down, the dead being raised, the wounded being healed. And then we come to the last two verses, and kind of these final comments will be our fourth, where we find our fourth observation on faith verse 28 and 29 and when he had entered the house so now like often they leave the crowds it's Jesus and his disciples we'd entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out I don't get it why did why, why didn't we have the power to do this and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer it's less mysterious I think than it sounds the, the disciples you know they have had past success Back in chapter 6, Jesus takes his disciples and he sends them on mission. It talks about them going into different towns, proclaiming and teaching. And it says they cast out many demons through his power and in his name. And here they are. It seems like they're relying now on their own past experience, their own power, their own strength. Evidently from Jesus' comment, they haven't even prayed about it. And they're wondering, why don't I have the ability to do this? Why don't I have the power to do this? Why can I not cast out these demons? They've become self reliant. Their faith isn't resting on Jesus Christ, it's resting on, I don't know, past experiences that they had success at one point. And so Jesus responds and he basically says, Disciple, it's because you didn't pray. It's because you didn't pray. And our fourth observation, the health of our faith and the health of our prayer life are always connected. The health of our faith and the health of our prayer life are always connected. One commentator said this, prayer is faith turned to God. Both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. And both wait and trust upon his promise to save. In the Gospel of Mark, we find Jesus praying multiple times. We've seen it already. We'll continue to see it. Jesus off, praying by himself, praying. This really, though, is the first injunction to his disciples that they need to be in prayer. But we're going to see it repeated again and again now from between here and Calvary. As Jesus has set his mind, set his face towards Calvary, he's called his disciples to follow him, and he's told us there's going to be a cross to bear. There's going to be shame and rejection and suffering If you're going to persevere in this, you're going to need faith. If you're going to have faith, you need to be people of prayer. You see, the disciples are inadequate in and of themselves to follow and obey Christ. We are inadequate in and of ourselves. We need Jesus to give us faith. We need Jesus to increase our faith. We need Jesus by his word and spirit and the fellowship of the saints to sustain and grow our faith. And when we pray, we are acknowledging before the Lord our complete dependence upon him for that. Prayer calls us to abandon reliance upon ourselves abandon faith and trust in anything else but in Jesus Christ it points us back not to the quality of our faith but to the object of our faith so as you read this text i think you're left with maybe two questions i am what do i do to get more faith Secondly, what will my life look like when I have more faith? The answer is actually very simple and the answer is the same for both. Prayer. (laughs) When I need more faith, I fall on my knees and I ask God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when I have more faith, what does my life look like then? I fall on my knees And say, Lord, I am inadequate. I realize it is about you and it is not about me. Faith doesn't come by a decision. Faith doesn't come by effort. It comes through prayer. It comes through his word. It comes through his means of grace. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you.